Let us now together open God's holy word. And we'll read in the first place from the book of Acts, chapter 1, the verses 1 through 11. And then we'll go to Hebrews chapter 9, the verses 23 through 28. We begin with the word of God in Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We turn now to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. We turn now to the part of the catechism before us, Lord's Day 18, Lord's Day 18, which deals with the ascension of our Savior. There we read, what do you confess when you say, he ascended into heaven? that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. 
Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, and grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present where his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 40, the stanzas 1, 3, and 5. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when a loved one passes away that leaves a big hole in the lives of many others. You know, we even have expressions when someone passes away, you might say, well, he or she will be greatly missed. Just not the same anymore. We know that, that the person ends to be with the Lord, and that is indeed better for the person, but for those who are left behind, it's not so great. You know, you cannot talk to the person anymore. If you enjoy their company, their interaction, there is a big hole in your life. You wish so often that they were still there. Now, we might think the same when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in his case, it's not quite that he passed away. Yes, he did pass away, but we know, of course, that he rose again on the third day. And then we know that for 40 days, we read that again also in Acts chapter 1, for 40 days he appeared to his disciples long enough for the disciples to think, well, is this the new normal? And they even thought, oh, is it going to be the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Of course, it was not like before when he had appeared in public. Now, the general public did not see the risen Lord. Still, they had contact with him, and they could interact with him. They could ask him questions. He could teach them. But then all of a sudden, you know, he had appeared and he would come through walls. He would all of a sudden be there, be gone again, not dependent upon normal ways of moving about. But then he left them in a way that they had not experienced before. Because as we read also again in Acts chapter 1, all of a sudden he, he was with his disciples and he was lifted up from the earth and there he kind of floated up in towards into the heavens till a cloud took him out of their sight. And you know, when that happened, we might expect the disciples to say, he will be greatly missed. And we might think, it's really too bad. Why could he not stay on earth so that he could interact with, the, with his believers throughout the ages? Wouldn't it be nice if the Lord Jesus Christ was available? Wouldn't we be able to have so many of the church problems that we have faced over the centuries solved? Rather than have to go to a classes or a regional senate, who knows what, you know, if we could go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, well, this is the problem. Can you please give us an answer? Wouldn't it be nice if he was still so readily available? But the reality is, however, that the Lord Jesus had spoken about his leaving on 
the night that he was betrayed, and he told his disciples that it would be to their advantage that he would go away. Now, why? Why would it be for the advantage of the church that their Savior is no longer readily available on earth? Well, Lord's Day 18 helps us there because it sums up three benefits. And that we may see these benefits and rejoice in knowing we have an ascended Lord, I proclaim to you this afternoon, Christ ascended into heaven for our benefit. And we see this as we consider, first of all, He is present as our advocate. Secondly, His presence is a pledge. And thirdly, His present of a counter-pledge. So Christ ascended into heaven for our benefit. And then we begin by considering how our Lord is present, present not on earth, but in the heavens as our advocate. Now, the word advocate is not a term that we use on a daily basis, but it's actually a word taken straight from Scriptures. You find it, for example, in the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 1. There, the Apostle John is telling his readers that, that we should not sin. As Christians, we should make every effort to live a life of faithfulness. But then he says, if we, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, what's an advocate? Well, an advocate, you could say it's kind of an old-fashioned word for what today we might call a lawyer. When you have to go to court, you have to hire a lawyer who will speak up on your behalf, who will plead your case before the judge. Now, of course, we realize that our Lord Jesus Christ is not speaking up for us in an earthly court, but He is speaking up for us in the most important court in the whole universe, that is, the heavenly court. It's worked out in more detail, especially in the letter to the Hebrews. We just read a little snippet of it, but really, if you think even of that snippet, chapter 9, that that's part of a bigger section, which begins back in chapter 4, verse 14, where the author alludes to the ascension of our Savior. He says, chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, there you have a reference to the ascension. Our Lord passed through the heavens of the atmosphere, space, till he went to the highest heaven of heavens where God the Father is. And then the author also says, because we have that, because we have an advocate who left the earth to go to the heavens, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's interesting. You know, when it comes to us, and we think about God enthroned in the heavens, it's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace because Jesus has gone into the heavens. Now, the author works that out in more detail because, you know, in that particular letter, he, he compares the Lord Jesus as priest after the order of Melchizedek to the priest after the order of Aaron. Aaron was a hereditary priesthood, Melchizedek, priest by special appointment. And then that he takes time to describe the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in the heavens, not on earth, but in the heavens. And he, and he relates that to what the earthly priest had been doing in the tabernacle. I'm sure the children have learned about this at school as well, when they studied the tabernacle and all the sacrifices. And the priest, they had to make a lot of bloody sacrifices, sacrifice lambs and bulls and goats to make atonement for the sins of the people. It's interesting also when Moses had been given instructions to make that tabernacle, 
he was basically given a blueprint to follow so that the tabernacle on earth that would be built, first of all, in the wilderness, was really going to be a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, our Lord Jesus' ascension into heaven is to be compared to the journey that the priest would make, especially on the Day of Atonement, when he had, when he had the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, and he had to go behind the curtain, and he had to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He had to bring that offering to make intercession for the sins of the people. You could say that, that the Day of Atonement, that was the big spiritual house-cleaning day for the people of Israel. They had all their daily sacrifices too, but that was the big day. Complete spiritual house-cleaning to restore the people to their fellowship with God. Now, we also read in Hebrews 9 verse 24, For Christ entered, has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so notice, brothers and sisters, how, how what happened at the tabernacle later on, it also, of course, happened in the temple in terms of the priest sacrificing, and then once a year, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies foreshadowed what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he ascended. Well, we notice the priest sacrificed daily, but, but we notice here we're thinking, especially on the Day of Atonement, the once for all, the once cleansing sacrifice. That sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ had offered on the cross, you could say in the ascension, He went into the heavens and He presented that sacrifice before the Father. You have to see that imagery there, especially Hebrews chapter 9, when you, as Hebrews 4 through chapter 10, basically, and you see that, and you begin to understand hey, that all this description in the Old Testament about the tabernacle, book of Leviticus, all the sacrifices, we might think, oh, that's kind of boring stuff, not that interesting. But really, what we read in that part of Scripture gives us a perspective on what really is happening in the heavens, what our Lord Jesus Christ is now also doing in the heavens. Because if His ministry on earth was all about offering the sacrifice for sins, His ministry in heaven is all about presenting the evidence of that sacrifice before the Father, to be the constant reminder before the Father that He has paid for all our sins. And He has to be in heaven to do that. It's not good in that the Old Testament time, it wouldn't be any good if the priest had made the sacrifice and then he stayed there outside the Holy of Holies. No, he had to take that blood into the Holy of Holies. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, if he had stayed on earth, you could say he wouldn't have been able to bring the evidence of the sacrifice before the Father. That's what he did. He went to the Father with the evidence of his once-for-all payment for our sins. And so it should become clear why our Lord leaving the earth is to our benefit. In the mention of Hebrews 4, we heard how having an ascended Christ gives us confidence to approach our Father. It's interesting that at the end of the whole description about the priestly work of our Lord Jesus, then he wraps up the discussion, chapter 10, verse 19 to 23, and again we hear the word confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You should always think about that. You know, every time we pray again, like we think even of the words of the Lord's Prayer, but even the way we tend to begin all our prayers, our Father, how is that possible that we speak to God who sits enthroned among, between the, among the cherubim, above the cherubim, that we, that we call Him our Father? It's because Jesus Christ is there. He's standing between the Father and us. That gives us confidence. It's important because as we think about it, that we approach our Heavenly Father, we might hardly dare at certain points because we think of our ongoing sins and shortcomings, yet hardly dare to go to Him. But then we think, but Jesus is there. Jesus is there, and He is, he is filtering our prayers. He is covering our sins. He is reminding the Father of His sacrifice. And standing so close to the Father, that is beneficial for us. That respect to use an image from sports. You know, some of them, maybe the young brothers, they, they play goalie. And a goalie, he has to always cut off the angles so that the shots can't get past him. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ is right there. He is cutting off the angles so that our sins actually do not appear before the Father, but he covers them all. Before they reach the Father, they are covered in His atoning sacrifice. And so the Father does not see them because our Savior is blocking them. He has absorbed them by His sacrifice. Of course, this is not meant to give us an excuse to sin all the more, thinking, oh, Jesus will cover it. Never. I mean, think again of the way that John spoke. Should not sin. But just to impress upon us as we struggle with our sins and we feel kind of hopeless, but we have an advocate. We have a high priest who is there to intercede for us. Now, as his ascension, therefore, is a benefit, for he is present in heaven as our advocate. It is also a benefit as his presence is a pledge. That's our second point. Now, to understand the benefit of a pledge we do well to start by spelling out what really is meant by a pledge. Simply put, it is a guarantee. For example, when, when someone buys a house and has to borrow money from the bank, then, then the bank also wants to know, okay, now how much money are you going to put in as a pledge that you're really committed to this before we're going to lend you money? So that, that down payment is important for the bank also to say, yeah, we can count on this person to kind of pay the rest. So a pledge is kind of a down payment. When it comes to a pledge, it's also evident, for example, in, in the way that a couple at a wedding will exchange wedding rings. A ring is kind of also a pledge. But now the Catechism states that Christ's ascension means we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ will take us up to himself. Now we have to dwell on this part of having our flesh in heaven. But that's really the unusual part about the ascension. For if you think about it, the Son of God, He has always, you could say, had access to heaven. He dwelt in heavenly glory. Paul, Paul writes about this, for example, in, 
in Philippians chapter 2. We think also of the way that John starts his gospel by saying, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we, we see the Son of God in His heavenly dwelling, His heavenly place. And then, just to bring out a comparison here, when we speak about the incarnation, he went a Christmas story, you could say. The, incarna- the marvel of the incarnation is that the eternal Son of God, remaining what He was, became what He was not. Namely, he became a true man. And then he dwelt among his people on this earth. But now, what you think it through. So there, the Son of God became man to dwell on this earth. In the ascension, the Son of Man went into heaven and dwells there with the Father. That's different. He didn't just go back as Son of God. He went back with something more than he had come with. He came and he went into the heavens with his human nature. So, if the incarnation is a case of God with man on earth, the ascension is man with God in heaven. Notice, man with God in heaven. Now this, we can also call it a great and mighty wonder. We usually use that term for speaking about the Son of God becoming man. It's also when we speak about the Son of Man going into the heavens, that has led to many interesting debates over the centuries. That's also why Lord's Day 18 is so much longer than the Lord's Day about the resurrection. You have those two questions and answers in the middle about that whole question about, now what exactly happened to Jesus' human nature when He ascended into the heaven? You know, there, there were think, people thinking about this, tried to understand it, and yeah, we, we kind of come before a mystery. How can it be? How can there be a human being in the heavens? And so, some, some said, there's also the promise that Jesus said, but I'm going to be with you till the end of the age. How is this all going to work? So, so they reasoned, well, when Jesus went into heaven, that His human nature somehow absorbed all the characters and qualities of His divine nature, which means that as the divine nature is everywhere present, also His human, nat- human nature is everywhere present. So, in that sense, Christ not only is spiritually everywhere present, but He is physically everywhere present. Is that possible? Can a person be physically everywhere present? No, that doesn't make any sense. And so, the Catechism stresses that, that Jesus remained fully man and fully God. And what was new in the ascension is that the Son of Man, and as a human being, the Lord Jesus Christ can only be in one place at one time, the Son of God in His human nature, so the Son of Man, in His flesh went into heaven. He is not physically present everywhere. Physically right now, He's in the heavens. That's why we wait for Him to come back in the same way that the disciples saw Him go up. But that means that we must think of a human being walking around heaven. That's kind of perplexing, isn't it? A human being walking around heaven. Because when we think of heaven, well, we know it's there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth is man's living space. Heaven is his space. But we have a tough time thinking of heaven as a place. We think of it as a spiritual realm. Things are, are invisible. But no, when we also think this through, then actually heaven is presented to us as a place where God dwells. 
That's where he is, surrounded by the holy angels. That's where the heavenly sanctuary is. And that's where the saints are who have gone before us. They're not just kind of floating around somewhere. They are with their Savior in the heavenly places. Of course, that again, we think about the saints who have gone before us. We think, yeah, but they left their body behind. We do have two examples from Scripture where people seem to have gone into the heavens with their bodies. I'm sure even if I asked the younger students, they would say, oh, yeah, we know. They would think of Enoch, who walked with God, we're told. He was a faithful man. Then he was not. They never found him again. So he was taken up into heaven. And Elijah, that story also where that fiery chariot came and kind of seemed to carry him away. Now, we shouldn't pretend to be able to understand and explain all this, but, but this is what is portrayed for us in the heavens. Heaven is a place where actually it is possible for people to be in their body, and that's where Jesus is. Now, the mention of Enoch and Elijah does lead us to ask, well, okay, if you have those two cases, what makes the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ different? Well, it is this, that He is called the head of His church, as head. That means He is the leader. And even more, to speak of Him as head, that also reminds us of our unity with Him, because He is the head, we belong to Him, just like a head and a body belong together, we are His body. And we also recognize then that where the head is, that's where the body is. Now, just, to think, just in case you think that sounds a bit far-fetched, because that's going to suggest that if the body is where the head is, then we're saying that actually we're in heaven already. Well, in a sense, we are. That's what the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 6, where he says, but the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised us, and also the believers, God raised us up with Him. So we have been raised with Christ spiritually, and seated us with Him. Hear that? Seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And so really in that respect, if somebody asks us, well, where are you? We could actually say, spiritually, I am with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. That's the, that's the privilege and the principle of where the head is, that's where the body is. So in principle, we have already a foothold in heaven because Christ is there, and we are joined to Christ. Now, of course, we know that we are not yet physically there, but we know that when we die, yes, we also have to leave our bodies behind for the time being. You could say our bodies have to be kept in uh, cold storage, be kept in the ground. But what's impressed upon us, though, is that there is a place for us. The Lord Jesus Christ said, too, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And we can see then how beneficial it is for us to have Christ in heaven. It's a pledge, it's a guarantee. As He is there, He's there as a human being, we now have access to heaven. We'd never had that apart from Christ. But in Christ, we have a place there. We have a right to be there, an honor to be there. After all, we are members of His body. And where Christ is, we are. And we will be in a more profound way when death comes and we leave this life behind, but we will be with Christ in heaven. There's a place there for us. 
And we come then to the third benefit, his present of a counterpledge. So we have here the language of pledge, counterpledge. Really, now we think back to the images I used earlier, that comes out most clearly. I mentioned the down payment for a house, but also wedding rings. You know, in, in a wedding, and the groom gives the bride a ring as a pledge of his abiding love and faithfulness. And as he's done that, and also the bride will give the groom a counter pledge also of her abiding love and faithfulness. So they're kind of exchanging gifts, you could say, that point to their promise. Now, in connection with the ascension, we can say how at the ascension, earth put something in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. But heaven didn't stay silent. Heaven responded by putting something on earth, namely the Holy Spirit. See, and the Lord Jesus Christ also spoke about this extensively on the evening he was betrayed. You learn a lot about these things in the Gospel of John, especially chapters 14 to 16. Chapter 14 for 16, yeah, so the, John, the chapters 14 through 16, but in chapter 14, verse 16, we read how Jesus said, the Father will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So that promise of the helper of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 26, we read, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then we read again of the coming of the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 15 and then chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. You never have the phrase we used in summing up the message too. It's to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, if the Lord Jesus Christ had stayed on earth, we would never have received the Holy Spirit. That's what he makes clear. I have to go away so I can give you this particular gift. And of course, the Lord Jesus also repeated that promise. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, last conversation he had with the disciples before he ascended. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We know this promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now, in his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul describes the gift of the Spirit as a guarantee, as a pledge. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22, he says that God has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Chapter 5, Paul writes about receiving a heavenly dwelling after we leave this life, and he writes that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, in that respect, we have to realize that the Holy Spirit is a great gift, but it is not the full extent of the gift of salvation, which will only be realized when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in glory and brings in the new heaven and new earth. But, but the Spirit, that's a down payment of all the promises of God that are going to come to us and they come to fulfillment when Jesus returns. Notice the down payment, the pledge, there is more to come. Now, to see also the benefit 
in receiving the Holy Spirit, but you'd be reminded of what actually the Holy Spirit came to do. Where our references from the Gospel of John indicated he would enable the disciples to remember what Jesus had taught them. And also his words just before the ascension indicate that the Spirit would empower them to be his witnesses. It's one thing to remember. It's also another thing to have the boldness to speak. That happened on the day of Pentecost. You know that story well, that the Spirit came and the tongues of fire settled over them, and, and then the disciples all of a sudden were able to speak in many different languages. And really, there had been no activity from the disciples in the ten days from the ascension to the day of Pentecost, but when the Spirit came, then Peter could not keep his mouth shut anymore. The audience comes, and Peter just has a powerful sermon to say, now this is what's going on. And he points the audience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bold, bold to proclaim the gospel. That's what the Spirit does. He makes believers understand the gospel and bold to proclaim the gospel. But the gift of the Spirit, however, is more than empowering the disciples to boldly proclaim the gospel. But the Spirit is also the one who empowers believers to begin to live in the newness of life. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul reminds his readers how they had received the Spirit by hearing through faith. And based on that, he says, well, now you have to keep in step with the Spirit. He doesn't say, well, dig into your own resources and begin to live a godly life. He says, no, you receive the Spirit. Work with the fact that you have received the Spirit. Paul speaks in a similar way in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4. He doesn't mention the Spirit specifically. But he does state that since we have been raised with Christ, we should now seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We are, we are told to set our mind on the things of God's kingdom, not on earthly things. You see, and the Spirit enables us to do that. We can also think of the way that, that Paul describes the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12, and in that body the Spirit is working, making it possible for the church with all these different people, all these different backgrounds, nationality-wise, talent-wise, social st standing-wise, that Spirit is making it possible for these people to now look at each other past all those things, simply as brothers and sisters, where they work together as a body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But not well for this to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ had to leave this earth so He could send the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, He works in every believer. And so we understand that. It's clearly to our advantage that Christ ascended into heaven. For present at the Father's right hand, He is our Advocate, He's always covering all our sins and how essential that is for our life. And His presence as our head is a pledge that He will take us to Himself. And His presence of the Spirit enables us already now to begin to live as if we were with Christ in heaven. And so tremendous comfort as we think about it, our ascended Lord. Comfort as we struggle with our sin, He is there to intercede. As we face death, we know there is a place for us. And also as we seek to live as a new creation, we have the Spirit to do exactly that. Amen.